It is quite possibly the most frequently cited criticism of Christians. They are too judgmental. In one survey, 90% of respondents thought just that. The view is that Christians are self-righteous and eager to compare themselves with their less religious peers. But if the current incessant chatter of the liberal media regarding sexuality tells us anything, it's that you don't have to be a Christian to be judgmental. The unbelievers are happy to discriminate between God-honoring marriage and a perversion of that, and they're happy to judge one as antiquated and oppressive and the other as loving and liberating. The question is not if we are to be judgmental, but how we are to judge. And so I want to take it a step back today, and before we are to judge and discern the actions of others, we must be about the business of judging ourselves. Now, Jesus told his followers to examine their own lives before they examined their brothers. Not that they never should do that, but they should first begin with their own heart and their own lives. And so today, we will be talking about judging, but mainly judging ourselves. And the reason we're talking about judging is because we're considering the second, thank you, the second of the two ordinances Christ instituted in the church, the Lord's Supper. Now, earlier we considered baptism and the seriousness with which that ordinance is to be approached, and the Lord's Supper warrants the same earnestness. Um, Instead of giving an overview and addressing this ordinance in a topical manner as I did with baptism, I want to simply look at the Lord's Supper as one of the marks of a true church, but I want to do it by just considering six verses from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And that's pretty much where we'll be for this whole message in 1 Corinthians 11. We'll jump back a little bit to Exodus there, but I just want to walk through these six verses. We'll mainly be looking at verses 27 and 28 for the majority of our time, and then we'll, we'll look at the final four. So just want to walk through these verses and consider what we may learn from the Holy Scriptures about the Lord's Supper and how we are to approach it. So in these verses, we have the Apostle Paul's explanation and application of the most holy and sacred ordinance of the Lord's Supper. So if you're in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, look with me at verses 27 and 28 um, and consider what we may learn about this ordinance and Christianity in general. Verse 27 says, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. The first thing that strikes the reader of this text is the seriousness with which the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, treats this subject. In the previous verses, he had explained that the Lord's Supper was instituted by none other than Christ himself, And he noted that Jesus ordained, hence the term ordinance, ordained this supper to be carried out in remembrance of him for all the days of the church until Jesus returns. Now Paul says that because of what this supper is a memorial of, in verse 26, if you just look one verse ahead when it says therefore, what's the therefore, therefore? It's because in verse 26, Paul says that in this ordinance, in this supper, you're proclaiming, you're preaching the Lord's death. So because of what this ordinance represents, anyone who approaches it in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood 
of the Lord, our text says in verse at the end of verse 27 there. So to partake in this supper in an unworthy manner is to treat in a light manner the most holy and sacred body of Christ. Now it's often the fact that those who men despise in life, they will despise in death. Right? In Homer's The Iliad, Achilles is fighting the great Trojan prince Hector. And before Hector dies, he's been defeated by Achilles. He knows he's about to die. He asks Achilles to at least give him a proper burial and return him to the Trojan king and queen and, and his wife. And, and instead of honoring Hector's body, Achilles lets the dogs and birds maul the body and then allows his fellow warriors to irreverently stab the dead Trojan prince. Finally, Achilles ties Hector to Hector's body to his chariot and drags him through the dust to the dismay of the king and queen of Troy. Such was a display of irreverence and disdain by Achilles for the man the body once belonged to. And we see this in scripture. The Roman soldiers had no respect for the Lord Jesus in life, beating him, mocking him, placing a crown of thorns on his head, striking him, and they had no respect for him in death, piercing his side with a spear. And if it were up to them, they no doubt would have given him a a criminal's burial. In contrast, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus no doubt carefully and reverently took down the Lord's body, and the Bible tells us they bound it in strips of linen with spices in order to give this great son of the highest king a proper burial. Now, unlike Prince Hector's body, which after finally being returned to the Trojans for burial, it stayed in the grave, Jesus' body did not remain in the tomb. Jesus rose again, and he now reigns from his throne. The Bible tells us in Acts 1-9 that the body of Jesus ascended to heaven, and the Bible also tells us that Jesus will return bodily one day. This is a, And we're not getting into the uh, transubstantiation, which is the Roman Catholic doctrine. I, I wanted to focus on this text. So I'm not going to give an overview, but with the Reformers, one of the main reasons they focused on the Lord's Supper was that the Roman Catholics had this view that in the Lord's Supper, Jesus' physical body is actually present. But that's an error because the body of Christ is not dragged down from heaven every time we have the Lord's Supper. Jesus was victorious over the grave, and he ascended bodily, and he will descend again bodily, not every time we take the Lord's Supper, but when he returns after defeating all his enemies. The Lord's Supper is a proclamation of his death once for all until he comes again. So it is no longer possible for anyone to physically desecrate the Lord's body. Though certainly, there are unbelievers that would love to do that if they could, with their hatred for the Lord. But yet, it is possible to partake in the ordinance which represents his body and blood in an unworthy manner. Now, no one is worthy in the sense that they are holy enough in themselves to partake. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Lord's Supper is a testament to that fact. What it means by unworthy in our text is this. It's a way not fitting for the ordinance. John the Baptist said, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. He meant that your repentance should be worthy. Another translation is bear fruits worthy of repentance. Your fruits should be commensurate with the repentance you're declaring. So to partake in the Lord's Supper in a careless manner is not fitting. Such a behavior leads to partaking in this most holy ordinance in a most unworthy manner. Now, let me say this, and this is 
clear from our text, I believe, that the Father cares about how people view the Son. He cares about how people approach the Lord's Supper because this is a ritual, a ceremony, which is all about the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Father is concerned for the fame of His Son. The Bible teaches us in Psalm 2 that the Father has set up Jesus as the King. The fate of men and women depends upon how they respond to Jesus. Psalm 2.12 says, Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. Kiss the Son is to pay homage, to honor, to reverence the Son. If you do not honor this man, this King, this Son of God, God's wrath will be kindled against you. To treat the Lord's Supper then in an unworthy manner, as our text says, is not befitting Christ's glory and splendor. It is not paying homage to the Son, Jesus, as the King that has been enthroned over all the earth. But again we may ask, looking at this text, why does the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, place such a great emphasis on this ordinance, on partaking in an unworthy manner, that you'd be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord? Isn't it the heart that counts, right? Isn't it just our heart and, and how if we in our heart we love Jesus, it doesn't matter how we partake of a ceremony or a ritual? Doesn't God just look at the heart? This is where we err when we lean on man's understanding. Obedience is not simply a matter of the heart. Obedience is not simply a matter of the heart in a simplistic sense. Obedience works its way out into real practical decisions. And obedience includes adhering to God's ordinances for the church. If someone cannot obey the Lord Jesus Christ when it comes to the clear matters of baptism and taking the Lord's Supper, how will they obey in other areas? There is a tendency by some to look down on ceremony and ritual. But this text, at the very least, reminds us that God still cares a great deal for rituals. In the proper sense. And let me, let me explain. I'll show that by looking at verse 28 and considering the requirements that God demands of his people in order to partake in this ordinance. Look at verse 28 again in your Bible there. But let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. This could also be rendered in some translations as a man must examine himself. A man must examine himself. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. There is a requirement beyond simply being a Christian to partake in the Lord's Supper. And the requirement is self-examination. Sober, serious self-examination. Now, I do want to jump back to Exodus 12 now. This is the one time we're leaving our text because I want to make some comments there based on what Bobby read this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus 12. And I want to point out a few principles here as it relates to God's view of rituals and ordinances. So in Exodus 12, as you're turning there, the Lord gives instructions to Moses concerning the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And we're only going to look at, Bobby already read a large section of that. I just want you to look at verse 14. Verse 14, this is about the Passover, where it says, So this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. Generations, excuse me. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. God instituted the ordinance of Passover as a memorial of his deliverance of his people from Egypt. The Feast of Unleavened Bread followed immediately after Passover, 
and is sometimes grouped together with Passover. So sometimes, and you get this if you look in the Gospels, it can be a little confusing at first, but sometimes they're equated together, even though they're two distinct ceremonies. Because both memorials commemorate God saving his people out of Egypt. Now the next verse, verse 15 there, gives some ritual or ceremonial requirements as it relates to unleavened bread. It says, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Now the leaven represented sin. Not that it was a sin to eat leavened bread, but it represented sin. And during this specific time that God wanted the people to set their hearts and minds on what he had done to save them from Egypt, to pull them out of that bondage, and to remind them of their requirement to walk in holiness, he wanted them to do this, follow these instructions for this ordinance, to cleanse their houses of leaven, to remove it all from their homes, and to eat unleavened bread, and to be reminded of what God did for them when he saved them from Egypt. So mark this, God required his people to prepare themselves for the ritual, the ordinance, the ceremony of remembering his deliverance of them. The Old Testament is full of this sort of thing. I have some other passages, but I want to skip those. I think this one in Exodus 12 highlights this. The Old Testament is full of this, purification, cleansing, preparation. God did not want his people to take the rituals and ordinances that he instituted lightly. He did not want them to partake in an improper or unworthy manner. The seriousness of this is highlighted by that last phrase there in verse 15. That person shall be cut off from Israel. The Lord God took this so seriously that those who did not follow his instructions as it related to this ordinance of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread would be cut off from Israel. Now I'm not getting into what that means. It could be a ceremonial um, separation. Some people say it could refer to death by the, God's hand, not necessarily the community. Uh, whatever the case, it was a serious thing to disregard God's instructions related to the ordinance. So here's the point. We still have certain ceremonial laws. Now I know that language will make my new covenant and dispensational friends uneasy, but it is true. God still requires his people to observe certain rituals and signs that commemorate his faithfulness in the past. These signs, these rituals, have now been reduced to two, the two ordinances of the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Nevertheless, they're still required by law, God's law, in the life of the church. Now, I will note, too, that there are still all the ceremonial aspects of the law are still there. We still have a high priest. right? The Old Testament, they had to go to the high priest. We still have a high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is still a sacrificial system. However, it's been it's one sacrifice once for all, the Lord Jesus Christ. So God didn't just completely discount the whole idea of ceremony with the coming of the New Testament. All the ceremonies, all the rituals in the Old Testament pointed to Christ, pointed to his fulfillment of them, but he constantly fulfills them. And there are still two rituals in the church that God demands of his people to follow. And there are laws and requirements for these ordinances. So the requirement for God's people is to partake in the ceremony of the Lord's Supper with self-examination. It's not about leaven. It's not about cleansing your home of yeast. It's not about those things. It's about examining your heart. A man must examine himself. In a sense, we certainly have more freedom 
in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, as the writers of the Confession noted, we have been freed from the yoke of the ceremonial law. We need not cleanse our homes from leaven. However, what is required here is, in some senses, even more radical. It is a self-examination, a self-evaluation, that is to be undertaken with the same intensity, vigor, and seriousness that Old Testament saints were to have when preparing to partake in the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and other ceremonies. Well, Paul goes on here, look at verse 29, and he goes on here and warns us of the consequences of treating the Lord's Supper in an improper manner, or partaking in this ritual without following the guidelines he set forth. Remember in Exodus, right? The person who didn't follow God's instructions would suffer the consequences. And don't think we serve a different God in the New Testament than the God of the Old Testament. Look at verse 29. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. Judgment, right? So many today deride judgment as if it is antithetical to human prosperity. Friends, judgment is essential to life. Judgment at its core is about making distinctions, and we make distinctions every day between good decisions and bad decisions, between good company and bad company, between good thoughts and bad thoughts. The Corinthian Christians had failed to properly judge. They were not making a distinction between the Lord's Supper and a common meal. They did not properly evaluate or judge themselves, and so they ate and drank judgment to themselves. Instead of approaching the supper with reverence and awe and mutual love for Christ's sheep and humility, they approached it with irreverence, pride, lust, and disregard for their brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, it may be that when Paul says here, that those who eat and drink in an unworthy manner do not discern the Lord's body, he may in fact mean, and many commentators think that he's referring to a proper judging of the body of Christ as distinct and separate from the world and worthy of a different manner of treatment. You see, the Lord's Supper is a communal ceremony, and if you partake in an unworthy manner, you both dishonor Christ himself and his body on earth, the church. Now, the failure of the Corinthian Christians to partake in the Lord's Supper in an appropriate manner, their failure to prepare themselves, they failed to follow the instructions that God gave, led to God's judgment upon them. And many of the Corinthian Christians were under the judgment of God and were either weak, sick, or sleeping, likely a reference to death. So God brought judgment on these believers. Now, this again highlights the seriousness with which God views the ordinances. Now, the non-Christian may think that it is extreme of God that he would bring about consequences, both spiritual and physical, to those who partake in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. However, the non-Christian fails to see that one's response to the commands and ordinances of God are identical to his response to God himself. People sometimes, and even Christians, seem to have this notion that you can love God even love Jesus, and yet not be punctilious and sober-minded, right, diligent and strict with yourself when it comes to doing what God's, God commands. They think that you can love God, but yet not be serious about obeying His commands. This is an absurdity, 
and it is a blight upon Christendom today. Jesus said what? If you love me, keep my commands. Jesus instructed his disciples to teach people to obey all that he commanded. So you cannot love Jesus and disregard his commandments. You cannot love God and disregard his ordinances. It would be like a saint in the Old Testament saying, yes, I love the Lord. I love Yahweh. He saved me from Egypt, but I don't care about the Passover. I don't care about keeping this feast that God has ordained to honor him and commemorate his faithfulness. And God does not have lower standards for obeying his ordinances and ceremonies in the New Testament than he did in the Old. I think this text shows that clearly. If we look at the Old Testament and say, oh, well, this person's going to be cut off from Israel. That was, you know, strict and harsh. We use those words harsh. Nothing God does is harsh. It's always just. But we look at that and say, wow, that, you know, that was, that was severe. You know, that, that, that's a good word. That's, it was severe. But now in the New Testament, it's not. My friends, God is the same judge, same God. He uses the same judgment. And our text here is at least as severe as anything in the Old Testament. A lack of reverence for Christ and his ceremonies will lead to spiritual and physical consequences. This is indeed a warning to the non-Christian and the Christian alike, but God will bring judgment on those who do not reverence the Son. Those who do not honor Jesus, God will deal with. Now, the question may be asked, right, if you're looking at this text, how could the Corinthians have known that they were sick and weak and some had even died? Uh, How could they have known that this was due to their lack of self-examination? You see, they had approached the Lord's Supper, and by extension, when we get into some more application, we'll talk about this, their whole view of the Christian life, their Christian walk, had been approached in such a careless manner that they were unable to even discern their own spiritual condition. That's the the indictment against them. It's not just, oh, you're sinning in this one way. It's that you cannot even discern your own spiritual condition and your own spiritual health. The Apostle Paul, under divine inspiration, tells the Corinthians plainly, your lack of preparation, self-examination, and soberness is leading to your spiritual and even physical judgment. The Corinthians had failed to test all things. They were immature. They were babes in Christ. Now, I don't even think that necessarily means that when someone's a babe in Christ, they're a new convert. You can be a convert for many years and still be very immature. So it's not about... The amount of years you've been in Christ, it's about your maturity level. It's the same with, you know, marriage. People think, oh, well, you're too young for marriage. It's not about your age, it's about your maturity. So, now, Paul addresses the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able. The Corinthians were immature in their faith, even if they'd been Christians for many years, And Hebrews 5.14 tells us that solid food belongs to those who are full age, those who are mature, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. This was the problem of the Corinthians. Their failure, failure to discern between the holy and the common. Their failure to discern between Christ's honoring conduct and Christ's dishonoring conduct was preventing them from growing into true maturity. The spiritual health The spiritual, healthy, and mature Christian is able to discern between good and evil due to constant practice, constant practice of judging, of using the Word of God to judge and discern between good and evil. Now, God may have inflicted these Corinthian Christians with weakness in order to give them pause and cause them to reflect on themselves. 
You see, it wasn't like I said that they were committing one sin. It wasn't. Now there were certain specific sins going on in the congregation, but it wasn't just the problem of the Corinthians is that they're all committing theft, they're thieves, or that they're all, uh, you know, committing adultery. It wasn't that God needed to discipline for that for for a specific sin. It was their lack of self-examination, their lack of self-judgment in general. So think about this. Let's say just trying to put this. Into, con- into some terms we can understand. Let's say you're a Christian in the Corinthian assembly and God is disciplining you for your lack of self-examination and coming to the Lord's Supper. And by extension, your lack of watchfulness in all of your Christian life. Now you find yourself weak and sick, both spiritually and physically. You have little joy. You are weak when it comes to fighting temptation. You are inevitably suffering physically due to your anxiety and sin. Now, God is disciplining you, right? Imagine you're one of those Corinthian Christians. You might say, well, how am I supposed to know that God is disciplining me? And what is he disciplining me for, right? Sometimes when we look at the scripture, we say God disciplines his children. Well, how do I know when God's disciplining me? How do I know what it's for? Here's the point. The moment you begin to consider your life and start thinking about your life and analyzing it and looking to the scripture, you've already begun to correct the problem. Once you begin to look at your life and look to God's word, judging your life by the word, you have begun to solve the problem. See, too many Christians, I think, will spend their time trying to, in some super spiritual way, try to figure out what does God want to teach me from this? And and why did this happen? And is this happening because of this in my life? And how do I know? And I think that misses the point. God doesn't reveal those secret things to us. Our job is to judge our conduct, our thoughts, our actions by the revealed Word of God. The moment you begin to examine yourself, you have repented and you've changed your course from what brought on God's discipline. If God disciplined the Corinthian Christians because they were not examining their lives, and then they find themselves questioning, man, what what have I done? Well, now they're beginning to examine their lives. And you see, it's not that God is trying to have us search and find out our our sin. You know, what is it? Why are you disciplining me, God? What, What did I do? God doesn't hide our sins from us. We do that ourselves, right? If we are generally examining our lives and praying the kind of prayers we find in the Bible, which I'll share a couple here, then we're going to be aware of the sins in our life that we need to repent of. That's not going to be the problem. Now, actually repenting of them is the next step, right? And that's another message. But here is a prayer that any child of God may pray and know that God will answer it. And I believe if the Corinthian Christians just took a moment to step back and analyze what they were doing and how they were viewing the Lord Jesus Christ's ceremony of the Lord's Supper and prayed these prayers and looked into their heart, they would have been spared from this judgment. You see, it's, it's, it is a strict and severe judgment, we, we may say, but it is not unreasonable. God is not demanding of these people perfection or another level of holiness. He's saying you need to approach your Christianity with seriousness and sobriety and look into your heart. Now here's a prayer that you may pray and, and if and God will answer it. Listen to these words. These are all from the Psalms. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my, my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my mind and my heart. Cleanse me from secret faults. Now, when I get to the next section, someone might say, well, why aren't we supposed to judge ourselves and examine ourselves? 
And it seems like here you're saying we should ask God to do that. The distinction is this. The psalmist here is pleading with God to illuminate his mind and guide his examination. The difference is between a child, right, who comes to his father and says, Dad, I need you to help me understand how to be a better son. Help me know how, how can I be a better sibling. Help me see where I'm in an error. All right? That child and a child who's being disobedient and unruly and mean to his siblings, all right, both those children are inviting God to help them, or inviting their father. Both those children are inviting their father to help them, right, and to give them instruction, but they're doing it in two different ways. One of them is inviting it by coming to his father with humility and seeking to, to examine his life. The other one is inviting his father's correction and instruction by his unruly conduct. So, if I may put it like this, the charge against the Corinthian Christians wasn't simply that they were sinning. It wasn't simply that they were, that they were sinning and, and they knew they were sinning. And it was that they weren't even concerned about their spiritual life enough to even recognize that they were sinning. We see that in chapter 5, right? We're not going to turn there, but when we look at church discipline, they were nonchalant about sexual immorality of the highest order in their own midst. And Paul says, you're boasting. You should be mourning. Like they just did not even have the self-awareness and the seriousness to examine their conduct. And Paul's charge against those, obviously the charge against the man who committed it is that sin, but his charge against the Corinthians is that you, you, you don't even take this seriously. They didn't have the self-awareness to see their sin and folly and lack of reverence for Christ. And that's why Paul tells them, I have to treat you as babes in Christ. You're just, you can't even, you can't even discern yourselves. Now, I believe a word needs to be said here as we move on to the next section for, for a new Christian or even a Christian of many years who reads these passages and fears coming to the table. And fears coming to the table lest God bring judgment on them for some secret sin in their life. A sense of reverence and awe is a good thing, but I would note, again, as I said, that even the newest believer is capable of coming to the Lord's Supper in a proper manner. The condition of self, is self-examination. It's not sinless perfection. You may come to the table even though you know you're struggling with a sin, even though you know you're weak and need Christ. But there's one thing that we should all know the most about. I would say first God, but then ourselves. We know a lot about ourselves. And so a Christian who is willing to look into his heart need not fear to come to the table and fear that God's going to bring judgment and physical sickness upon him just because he's, he's not walking as, as best as he could. Right? So that needs to be, that's a distinction that needs to be made. Many, I think, have read this and feared coming to the table um, because they, they think God's going to judge them um, because there's sin in their life. Right? There's always going to be sin in our life that we need to be repenting of. But it's a carelessness, a lack of self-awareness, and a disregard for Christ and His holiness um, that brings about God's judgment on those who partake in an unworthy manner. Now, our last section here is verse 31 and 32. Look at the final two verses in your Bible. Verse 31, it says, For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. So look at 31. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. Self-judgment may be disdained by the world, but it is commended by the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us that we are to be about the business of judging ourselves lest we invite God to do it for us. As the Puritan Matthew Henry put it, to be exact and severe on ourselves and our own conduct 
is the most proper way in the world not to fall under the just severity of our Heavenly Father. Right? Matthew Henry says the best way to avoid the just severity, right? It's not harsh of God, it's, it's just, but it, it's going to be severe. The best way to avoid that discipline is to take matters into our own hands, calling upon God for aid, looking to the Word, and judging ourselves. So you know what the problem with the Corinthian Christians was? They weren't judgmental enough. They weren't judgmental enough. Listen, self-regulation is the key. Self-judgment is the key. It's the, princ- it's the same principle in every sphere. If one will not judge, regulate, and govern himself, he invites another to do it. It's, the, it, it's, the, it's that case in the state, right? If a people do not govern and regulate themselves, they invite the civil government to do it for them. We see that in our nation. And I don't know about you, although I think I might, but I'd rather be regulating myself than have some bureaucrat in Washington do it for me. And it's the lack of self-government and self-regulation that has invited the government to regulate everything for the people who are unable or unwilling, no desire, to govern themselves. It's the same in the family, right? And we expect this of our children. They're, they're born in sin. But if a child cannot govern himself, he invites, via his unruliness, his parents to do it for him with the use of the rod. The principle applies in every sphere. And so Paul here says that we ought to be judging ourselves. The requirement for the Lord's Supper is self-examination and self-judging, but the principle applies to all of Christian life. And I think that's what Paul's getting at here. He says that if we judge ourselves, if we make distinctions in our thoughts, attitudes, words, and actions, then we'll be saving ourselves from God having to step in and do it for us. Now, when God does judge his people, I just want to touch on this briefly because we need to move on here. In verse 32, when God does judge his people, it's always restorative. The purpose in the text is that they would not be condemned with the world. So God's fatherly judgment of Christians is soul-saving. And Christian, you want that type of judgment. You want God to maintain the distinction he made between you and the world when he saved you and gave you his spirit. You want that. Now, the... It's interesting, the unbeliever doesn't want that, ju- they don't want that judgment from God. They don't want to, they don't want to have God, and you know, they view it as an oppressive thing, you know, breathing down their neck saying, you know, you are not to live this way, you are to live this way, you are not to do this, you are to do that. They see that as oppressive, and they don't want that judgment in this life from God, that distinction making, that discipline. And so, they don't get it. But they then invite for themselves the eternal judgment of God, the condemnation of God. And God's condemnation of the world includes the fact that he allows them to continue in their sin. He allows them to continue to judge improperly. That's why we see, and the scripture tells us this, the world, the unbelievers, call evil good and good evil, failing to discern between Christ and Satan. That's really what it is. In the Gospels, the religious leaders opposed to Christ called him Beelzebub. They called him Satan. They, they could not even discern and judge between Jesus Christ, the source of everything good, and Satan. And as we look around at our secular landscape and the utter lack of proper judgment and distinction making, calling a girl a boy, a boy a girl, just it's chaos, we see that the world is indeed without God's discipline in the sense that Paul speaks of it being applied to believers. So let's conclude now with a final piece of application as it relates to the principle of self-examination and self-judgment. <clears throat> Specifically to the Lord's Supper, but also to all of Christian life. So, verse 28, 
It talks about examination. This word refers to testing, trying, proving something to see if it is genuine. It is laborious work. It involves analyzing our thoughts, our motives, our actions, our intentions, and proving them. Now, I've already mentioned that we ought to pray to God to help us, right? To to examine our hearts. But what are some other ways that we can cultivate a mindset of biblical self-examination or self-judgment? How can we be about the business of examining ourselves? I want to give five five ways here real quick. Number one, five ways to help cultivate a mindset of self-judgment. How can we we be more judgmental, right? I know people would love to hear that. (laughs) Remember the meaning of the Lord's Supper. In other words, remember Jesus Christ and His work. Remember what he did to save you from your sin. And think about that. Why is this ordinance so suited to self-examination? It's because first, as we remember the Lord's work, it ought to put us in a humble frame of mind. If we're remembering the Lord's death, we ought to be cognizant of our own sin, which necessitated his bloody death on the cross. We ought to be humbled and open to our frailty and weaknesses. We are not strong enough to save ourselves. We are not wise enough to instruct ourselves apart from Christ. And we are not pure enough to approach God on our own merits. We are utterly dependent on Christ for any good in our lives. Now, seeing our failings and sin shouldn't lead us to despair if we, already, if we recognize that the Lord's Supper is a memorial of what Jesus did to save weak sinners like us. Right? That's the difference between a worldly self-flagellation where you're just beating yourself up and Christian self-judgment. The worldly person feels sorry for himself when he fails to live up to some standard. The Christian is sorry that Christ is dishonored. The Christ's glory is tarnished. And so as you remember the meaning of the Lord's Supper and you remember Christ's death, you're putting yourself in the mindset for self-examination. All right, the Lord's Supper is not the time to be examining other people and to be you know, trying to help help someone else. There's plenty of time for that. This is the time for you to examine your own heart and, and humble yourself and look into your own heart. That's the first way. Just understand the meaning of the supper. Number two is to cultivate a mindset of watchfulness in your life in general. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 4.23, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. Now, when I talked about baptism, I talked about how many Christians enter into the Christian life haphazardly. It's a careless entrance, and a careless entrance into Christianity will lead to a careless progression in Christianity. The thing we all need is to watch over our hearts with all diligence. Press into your mind that the Christian walk is one of spiritual warfare and self-regulation. Jesus is not interested in half-hearted followers. I think many cultural Christians, right, those who are Christians in name by name alone, should read this text and realize that Jesus is not interested in half-hearted followers who do not want to take seriously his commands and ordinances. If you come to Christ, you come to engage in spiritual warfare. That sense of watchfulness would have prevented the Corinthian Christians from being so careless. Now again, the world, and perhaps erring Christians, will think such a call for watchfulness is too burdensome and severe. Right? However, the real danger is not watching and judging ourselves and being too judgmental with ourselves. The real danger is, is um, being careless. Let me read Pur- the Puritan Richard Rogers commented on that. And listen to this quote. He says, Watchfulness is counted too strict 
until people be well acquainted with it. Right, so the world, so the world, and maybe immature Christians think, you know, it's too strict and severe for me to examine my heart and be watchful. But if you are a stranger to watchfulness, look to fall often. I mean, to fall dangerously. Look to find many wounds in your soul, and to lack many comforts in your life. Rogers is saying, look, people think watchfulness is strict and severe, but once that's because those people aren't being watchful. And instead of being watchful and protecting themselves, they're inviting many dangers and pains in their lives. So cultivate that mindset of watchfulness. It's much worse to be to lack watchfulness and self-examination. You're going to fall dangerously. So number so number three now, learn to repent of particular sins particularly. And this might be one of the simplest ways to become better at discerning your actions. When you sin, take that opportunity to truly analyze why you sinned. What were you thinking, feeling? What did you expect to happen? We do this with our kids a lot, right? We have to do it with ourselves, too. What did you tell yourself? What didn't you tell yourself? And here's a good question, and John Owen, I got this from John Owen. Why why is this sin so heinous in God's sight? And all sins are, so just think about it. You'll be able to figure it out. Why, why is this sin so heinous? And John Owen taught you to load your mind with the sinfulness of this particular sin. Not sin in general. This particular sin that you sinned, why is this so wicked? Are you in danger of sinning this way again? What might you do to prevent yourself from sinning in this way again? Now, you might not have time every day to sit down and analyze everything that happened, but you want to get yourself in the habit of thinking biblically as you go. The art of taking thoughts captive as you have them and filtering them with a basic Christian worldview is a much-needed art. It's a skill that needs to be developed. Too often we simply let life happen to us. We just take everything that happens, we take it into our mind, into our lives, without judging, discerning, and evaluating what's going on and why we are responding the way we ought to. And we're just careless. If we're constantly aware of what's going on in our hearts and minds, self-examination then becomes a natural part of our Christian walk. And there's one thing that's worse than sinning against God. That's sinning against God and then not examining ourselves and growing from it. Number four, invite others to help you. So how can you cultivate a a life of self-examination and self-judgment? Invite others to help you. Husband, ask your wife. Wife, ask your husband. Ask a Christian friend. Where do I need to reconsider my thoughts, words, and actions? Where am I not honoring Christ according to my profession of faith? Do I demonstrate love to the brothers? We ask God to help us. We can surely ask our brothers and sisters to help us see our faults. And number five, finally, and this relates specifically to the Lord's Supper, I think. Take advantage of the means of grace and prepare for the Lord's Supper in a different way than you would normally prepare for the Lord's Day. So if you're not taking the Lord's Supper every week, this would certainly, if you're taking the Lord's Supper every week, this would have to be changed a little bit. But if you're not, the Lord's Supper is a distinct from a regular Lord's Day, then we might prepare for it in a special manner. The psalmist in Psalm 119, 148 says, My eyes are awake through the night watches that I may meditate on your word. The Puritan William Gurnall in his work, The Christian in Complete Armor, says that it's not only laudable, but delectable, that on some extraordinary occasions, Christians watch unto prayer as Jesus did on many occasions, keeping a vigil into the night. So he says, look, it's, it's, 
it's not only laudable and, and praiseworthy to do that, but it's delectable for your soul. It's beneficial to your soul that on some occasions, and he even says on some ex- extraordinary occasions, right? Not all the time because he even says, so superstition be avoided and health regarded. He says, look, don't be staying up every night examining your life. And, and you know, yes, it's that serious, but you also need rest and it's not a superstitious thing. You know, some people view prayer and, and the Lord's Supper in a superstitious manner that, you know, I'm just going to be, I'm going to be super, I'm just going to pray for five hours and then God's going to bless it. Granal says, look, it's beneficial to your soul to have special time of watching and prayer and reading the scripture to examine your heart. But it should only be on those extraordinary occasions so that it doesn't become superstitious and so that your own, your health is regarded, right? So you're not staying up every night or even every Saturday night for out, you know. But the point is this, there can be times when we call out to the Lord with greater fervor and more watchfulness than others in order to benefit spiritually. It's not that other times in your life you're not watching your soul, but you set this time apart specifically to examine your heart. Now, during this time, this would be a good, you know, if the Lord's Supper is coming up and it doesn't have to be the night before, but someday during that week you set aside some time to specifically examine yourselves, specifically in five areas. In the Baptist Catechism, five areas are listed. Knowledge, faith, repentance, love, and new obedience. And you can look at the catechism and and look at these on your own, but examine yourself as it relates to knowledge. Do you have a proper understanding of the Lord's Supper and what it represents? Number two, faith. Examine your faith. Are Are you trusting in Christ and his word alone, not just for salvation, but for all of your thinking? Number three, repentance. Have you truly changed your mind about specific sins in your life Make it personal to you. Don't just say, oh, I'm exa- you know, yes, I've repented of my sins. What sin? And have you really repented of it, or have you just moved on from it and ad- you know, adopted another sin? Number four, love. Examine your love. How are you relating to your fellow Christians? Does it demonstrate the love of Christ for his church? And number five, new obedience. Are you just as committed to further obedience and progression in your Christian faith as you were before, Or are you simply content to stay where you are? This is where many a saint of mature years ought to examine himself. So those are five ways you can cultivate a mindset of self-judgment, proper biblical self-judgment. And the last way, the last part there is a, just a help and a guide. And you can look at that in the Baptist catechism there that when you do know the Lord's Supper is coming, to take aside some special time to examine your heart, right? The, the, the ordinance of God comes with requirements. And in the Old Testament, the people would take seriously this Feast of Unleavened Bread, this Passover. They'd go through their home. They'd cleanse out their home. They'd, 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 they'd cleanse everything to make sure that they were, they were pure. They were following God's requirements. And so when we approach the Lord's Supper, while we don't have to worry about the leaven in our home, we can be focused on the leaven in our heart and in our mind and be careful and, and, and scrupulous with ourselves setting aside time to examine our hearts. So in conclusion, the Lord's Supper is one of the only two ordinances that remain obligatory for the people of God, and it merits our full attention and obedience. The weight and sobriety that attend this doctrine should strike the Christian and the non-Christian alike. Like nothing else, the Lord's Supper calls us to examine our own lives and hearts, to judge and discern our own motives, our own thoughts, our own actions. It requires us to slow down and carefully prepare ourselves for this ceremony that God has ordained. 
It demands that we go through the corners of our mind and clear out the leaven from every room in our heart. It entails a scrupulous searching of ourselves. It instructs us to be judgmental Christians. Let's pray. Lord, help us to judge ourselves with seriousness, severity, and strictness according to your word. We know, Lord, that you are a gracious God, ready to pardon our sins. Help us then to be severe with ourselves, that we might be all the readier to receive grace from your hands. And may we approach the Lord's Supper in a way that honors the Lord Jesus Christ for who he is and what he has done. And may it be a demonstration of our approach to all of Christian life, that we would follow after Christ with seriousness, with love and joy and sobriety as we look to live in the way that you have called us to. We pray you bless this word to our heart now. In Jesus' name, amen.